0: Father in heaven, we thank you as we come before this passage now. We don't come before a dry text, but we come before your living word. And so we come before you, our God, who loves to speak to his children. We pray that in the midst of all the challenges we may be experiencing, in the midst of changes that we're going through, and some of us particularly keenly feel that, We ask that you might give us a fresh glimpse of who you are and of the hope that we have in you this morning. Please be at work. Please speak. Please soften our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. As you look around the place, a live question that people of all faiths and none seem to be asking at the moment really is that one, is where do you go for hope in a in a confused and chaotic world, fragile and messed up, and possibly not hugely hopeful. There is that recognition of the hopelessness of our culture now, and then the wearing of rose-tinted spectacles, and the reminiscing of days that used to be, where do we go for hope? There's a new um, album just been released by, many of you will know, one of my um, favourite bands, a band called Bastille. It's a striking album. The big idea of this album, the narrative structure behind it, is that in the midst of the brokenness of society, well, it's based around a night out, some mates on the town. And they're very clear about it. They're trying to bring hope into the darkness. They're trying to cling to what is good just for a night, just to to forget reality in some sense. Which means it's more cheery and more poppy and more chipper than previously. And it ends up with this great song called Joy, and it's a good song. But... but the sad part is it is still a hugely hopeless album. There is no real answer to the problem. Really, there ought to be another song where you wake up the next morning with a headache and still have to go to work. Nothing really has changed. Nothing really has moved on. There's an honesty about the problem, the, the album as a whole, but when it comes down to it, it's, you can't really deal with it. It's just an escapism. It, they are doomed days, as it's entitled. The escapism comes through phone addiction, or people, or pornography, or, or just the night out with your mates on the town. But actually, actually the album just plays again and again. Repeat on Spotify, more darkness and so more escapism, and more darkness and so more escapism. Really it's just a case of cheerfully whistling in the dark and trying to pretend everything is okay, really, when we actually know it's not. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we head to work and it's still dark. So the question is, where do you go for hope? It's an important question for us At the personal level, me or my family or my life, my situation, my next few months, or the corporate level, us as a church, or even the national level, as Hannah was praying for for our leaders, Or, or for the short term, how do you get through this day or this week or this month? How do we get to the summer holidays when everything will be okay again? Or the longer term, how do you get through this year? Or this season of life where it's just such a, a drudgery, it's painful. How do you keep going? What do you live for? As Bastille put it, aren't we all just looking for a little bit of hope these days? And they're honest. And indeed, is there hope? When it comes to it, it's a question we've been asking week by week through this series in Chronicles. Do you remember the writer seeking to retell history in such a way that we can be hopeful? He doesn't airbrush out the nasty bits, but he lifts our eyes to to a future reality. So he reminds us of God's enduring faithful um, covenant promises. He reminds us that even though they were exiled and they are back in the land... There is a way of living with God at the heart of them, where they will remain in the land, at least in theory. He reminds them that God still cares, that his promises are still true, that he is still good. And it's particularly a question we're meant to ask at the end of Chronicles, because at this point it is going from bad to worse. Remember, we're on the helter-skelter coming down and down, and there are some blips, but mostly it's just down, and it's painful. Actually very sadly, as Andrew read for us we 'll see this morning there's a fundamental dismantling of what 's been built. What we saw that took chapters and chapters to construct in just a few short verses, it all falls apart. You sense how fragile Israel is with God out of the picture. then it 's striking because we 're not left without hope. Have a look down with me at chapter 36. Um, What I want to do is try and initially just sweep over these four kings. They are bad news, but I want to try and give you a bird's eye view, and then we'll quickly work through them one by one as well. I want to show you three things that unite them. They are unified, first of all, if you're a note-taker, there's a screen for you. They are unified, first of all, in their false worship. And to be fair to the first guy, Jehoahaz, I think that is implied as God allows the king of Egypt to dethrone him. But it's explicit with the next three, with Jehoiakim, with Jehoiachin, and with Zedekiah. You get it explicitly, verse 5, verse 9, verse 12, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, which I'm told is a technical reference, it's shorthand for false worship. They, they bring false gods into the temple, and so perhaps then God allows his temple to be decimated. Their hearts are actively pursuing other gods that promise them life, empty promises of life and power, and so it all goes wrong. So they're unified, I think, in their false worship. They're unified as well in being what I've called political pawns. It's, it is sad to see it, but rather than being a blessing to the nations, they lighten the darkness Rather than being distinct and different, and people attracted to them, seeing through his people what God is like, which is the way it always has been and was always meant to be, so the darkness seems to engulf them. And they are carted off this way and that way, and the nations now get to decide who rules over Israel, it seems. It looks like God is not in charge anymore. It looks like these enemy kings are in charge. Which means thirdly then, there's a unification in the temple plundering. They're unified as the temple is plundered. Remember, much of Chronicles has been about this construction of the temple. It sits at the heart of the people of God, both geographically but in terms of their spiritual life as well. It's the place of God meeting with his people. It's the place of sacrifice, of blessing. It's the place of worship for the people of God. And yet in the blink of an eye, Deconstructed, decimated, desecrated, it's gone. So you can track it through. Do you see verse 7? Nebuchadnezzar also took to Babylon articles from the temple of the Lord and put them in his temple. There, Verse 10, in the spring, King Nebuchadnezzar sent for him and brought him to Babylon together with the articles of value from the temple of the Lord. And then to cap it all in verse 18, all the articles from the temple of of God, both large and small and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials, they set fire to God's temple. And they broke down the wall of Jerusalem. What took so many generations to build, to, to fundraise for, to plan, to, to enact, in just a few short verses, it's just gone. And so that's the sort of broad brushstrokes on our way down the helter-skelter. That's what unite them as kings, false worship, political pawns, and then the the temple being plundered. But then let's go through each one in turn, and we'll stop off in various places where I think that's helpful. So for the first king, if you look down, verse 2, you get this guy called Jehoahaz. He's deposed by the Egyptian king, Nietzsche. We met him last week with Josiah, if you remember. He's only in place for three months Perhaps it was his anti-Egyptian or his pro-Babylonian policy. But after just three months, Jehoahaz, probably his more compliant brother, Eliakim, is put in place. He then gets a name change, just to confuse us, to Jehoiakim. But the thing to note is that Israel is now not in charge, no longer independent. They would be what's termed a vassal state. They are ruled over by the Egyptians, which which means it almost feels like it's going back into slavery again, doesn't it? It almost feels like the Exodus in reverse again, as if time is reversing, as if the promises to Abraham are unraveling. That's what it feels like. After Jehoahaz, we get to Jehoiakim, new name. He was on the throne for 11 years, and it's explicit that he was certainly one, verse 5, who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He engages in false worship, and it's obvious. He was attacked by Nebuchadnezzar, the Egyptian king, as the, the balance of power shifts. But more than that, the temple receives its first real state of desecration, articles removed and taken to Babylon. And the thing about temple plundering is that from the perspective of Egyptians or Babylonians or Assyrians or Persians, whoever, when the temple is plundered, it it looks like your god beats their gods. It looks like the playground fight. My brother is bigger than your brother, and therefore we are more important and we are in charge. And when when you plunder a temple, of course it's a deliberate thing, it is to break a people. It's to cut to their hearts. It looks like you've gained the upper hand and that you are following the true God. We'll see in a bit that's not quite right. And this extraordinary idea that that goes through the scriptures, this drumbeat, is that God is still in control. He does have his sovereign plans and purposes. He's, He's not taken his eyes off the ball. He's let it happen for a reason. After Jehoiakim... We get Jehoiachin, verse 9. He is is in charge for three months and ten days. Clearly the ten days are important. Like I am five foot nine and a half. That half matters. And Nebuchadnezzar sends for him to be brought to Babylon, as well as more articles from the temple. But the big thing here is that this is the first big deportation of God's people at least the people of God in the south, and Babylonian records can confirm it. In our money, it was round about March the sixteenth, five nine seven BC. And they get removed. But then last of all, you get Zedekiah verse eleven, Jehoiachin's uncle. And we're gonna slow down with him because I think a number of aspects of his reign matter. Um, There's much more detail in 2 Kings 24, Jeremiah 39, Jeremiah 52, um, as I'm sure you know. But if you'd like to scribble those down, then do. You can look at them in home groups. Uh, But again, for Zedekiah, he was a puppet king of Nebuchadnezzar. He had been forced to take an oath in God's name. And yet, look at what he does in the midst of it all. The the chronicler slows right down for us. Zedekiah is meant to be in our attention. He, He grabs the highlighter. And he wants us to take note. Why? Because here is what unfaithfulness explicitly looks like. Verse 12. He he did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who he had made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. Again, do you notice the language? It's a little bit like the Pharaoh in Exodus again, this idea of heart hardening. That the ruler of God's people becomes like the enemy of God's people. And rather than turning back to God for help, he is hardened towards God more and more and more. And I guess that rings true to some extent with us, doesn't it? Whenever hardship comes, and it does and it will come, whether in simply the the messiness of life and the brokenness of of this world or or even in specific response to a, a particular action we've done, a particular sin even... We always, to some extent, have a, have a choice. There's a T-junction in front of us. At that point, do you turn to God in repentance and faith and trust and obedience? Or, or do you turn from God with hardened heart, turning away from him? Arms crossed, proud. How dare you let this happen to me? How dare you make this happen to me, even? Zedekiah definitely does the latter. He turns from God, and so he drifts further and further and further away. It's striking, though, in verse 14 as well, have looked look down. It's not just the king who's implicated, but the leadership, and indeed all are implicated in this turning away. It's, you might find that confusing, but there's a sense in which Zedekiah and the people and the leaders have the kind of king they want and perhaps the kind of king they deserve but actually he leads them in that as well it seems to almost be like a positive feedback loop god's judgment on them being the kind of king that they longed for but not the kind of king they needed it's right at this point just to press pause to some extent and ask ourselves the hard questions of what we do in response to the word of god what do we do with that challenge? There'll be different responses. They're there in the text. Um, different responses from Zedekiah. The first is a kind of rebellion. Obviously, there's something profoundly human about rebelling against God as he speaks, about ignoring him. It's the pattern from Genesis 3 onwards. He speaks, and we don't like it Often. And we might not have Jeremiah in the flesh speaking to us as Zedekiah did. But maybe we still have that knee jerk reaction when we don't really hear God saying what we want him to say to us. We don't really want him involved. Are there ways in which you're pushing your fingers in your ears or head in the sand or ignoring him? Things that you, you know he is might be saying, nudges and but we just don't listen. We need to be careful. Years later, Jesus will go on to tell a parable that certainly reflects something of this idea in in verse 15 to 16. Do you see the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and his dwelling place, but they mocked God's messengers. They despised his words, they scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. Do you remember the parable of the tenants in the vineyards? We'll spend some time in home groups looking at Mark 12 to think about that. But the story goes on that God sends prophet after prophet after prophet and finally his son and and they kill his son too. But the point is, the pattern is, friends, our God is patient in speaking. But I wonder at times where there comes a point that his anger is is roused, and he speaks and we ignore, he speaks and we ignore, he speaks and we we ignore his. He's patient, but at some point, in in love, he disciplines us. He he wakes us up to what he's saying. So the first response you see in Zedekiah is this rebellion. The the second one is interesting, and it's an example of that. It's in verse 21, and this thought of rest. Have a look down. Um, The land should have been given a rest says the chronicler. God literally wrote it into their calendar. And so when the people were removed from the land centuries later, as Moses knew they would be, Moses said this, he said, then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate and you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. You see, God wrote it into the calendar. They were meant to press pause. They were meant to remember that God is in charge, to rest, to remind them that he is God, that, that we are not God, that we can sleep because he does not sleep. And so the implication when they're removed is that the land is owed a rest. In their pride, they had not taken it. They had ignored God. In their self-sufficiency, they had done away with his word. They'd done things their own way. And, and I take it that pattern of rest is somewhat built into creation. The slightly different way under the new covenant, we can chat over coffee about that. But I'm struck by the fact that if we don't rest, it has a way of catching up with us. God has made us needy, deliberately, and when we forget that he is God and we are not God and that we are dependent on him and, and we can sleep because he does not sleep. When we forget those things, then, then things have a way of unravelling, often. It may be that you need to slow down. And, and wisdom would dictate that you do that. It, Maybe you need to ask the hard questions of why you find slowing down so difficult. And I recognize we are busy. We live in a busy city. It's a busy season for us as a church. But maybe asking the questions of why we find it hard to say no to stuff. Why there can often be this perpetual cycle of busy, 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 busy burnout. Busy, 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 busy burnout. We were made to rest. And as the people are removed, so the land gets to enjoy the rest it was meant to have, to make it more fruitful. At this point in Chronicles, at this point in the history of the people of God, I think it's fair to say that there is more than a passing resemblance to a tiny piece of flotsam tossed back and forth of the mighty oceans of the global superpowers. They seem very insignificant, whether it's Egypt or Babylon or Persia. Israel does not look particularly impressive, which means God does not look particularly impressive. Maybe we feel something like that. Maybe we don't feel particularly impressive. Is there light at the end of this tunnel? Whatever that tunnel is for us, that, that tunnel of personal holiness, that, that thing you still battle with, that tunnel of a building project, that thing we still battle with, is there hope when we feel insignificant, when we feel like Oxford is big and looming large and we feel small? I want to say yes. And so I want us to read just the end of the final chapter and see... From the ground level, three causes for hope. And then we're going to swoop up high and see another cause for hope as well. Why can we be hopeful as the people of God? Why could Israel, now back in the land, be hopeful as they read about their history? And why can we be hopeful as we live in 21st century Oxford? first one is that God always preserves a people for himself. Have a look at verse 20. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. And that word there, that remnant, is a technical word. It means that where God's righteous discipline and judgment is, is displayed, you always find mercy. The story is bigger than us. God will never not have a people for himself. He will always have a remnant. He will always have a people. Perhaps in more familiar books of the Bible, think of Daniel. Think of God's people removed from God's land, away from home, but they never stop being his people. And what's more, he is still with them. In fact, protecting them, working through them, in them. Think of the book of Ezekiel. We were there a few weeks ago in the local FIC combination service. Think of Ezekiel and this incredible mobile throne. God with his people in exile. And so because our God makes promises to his people, he will always preserve a people to whom those promises are made. Even if they're not at home. Even if it's complicated and hard. Even if... Everything looks messy, they're still his. He will preserve a people for himself. And so I want to say, don't catastrophize. When you read the papers, and, and there's another survey about how much the church is shrinking in the UK or in the West. A couple of things to say. One is, I want to say for a start, the church is alive and well. And largely, those churches that have shrunk or disappeared were churches that that lost the gospel in some sense decades ago. but secondly, know that God will always keep his people. He will always preserve a people for himself because he 's a God who makes promises to people. Second piece of hope in these final three verses verse twenty one is that god 's word is always trustworthy. And that really is not just wishful thinking. It is actually true. His plans and his purposes are ultimate. However bad it looks, however much we're confused and panicked by what's going on, God's words can still be trusted. And so, verse 21, the land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Um, He's referencing Jeremiah 25. There's a whole chapter to read, but just verse 11 will suffice for now, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years, said Jeremiah. And that prophecy is then picked up in various places. Um, The people in exile twig that the time is up. You get it in Ezra 1 or Daniel 9, and then 2 Chronicles 35 and 36, where we are. And there are some questions whether it was a a literal 70 years or more of a metaphorical seven being completeness thing. I think actually both work pretty well. But the point we need to take away is that God's word can be trusted. We can build upon what God says. It, It is true. And it strikes me the challenge for us and the challenge for any generation of God's people it is simply that challenge of trust to trust the word of God when it's our turn previous generations had different things different battles that they were fighting but actually their calling as well was to trust the word of God in their generation it, doing that has always been seen as weird and naive and foolish And we look silly. And yet even here in the text, with the people of God losing their homes, being deported, God's word is true. And so we must hold our nerve and build upon his word. Of course, the danger on the flip side is to seek to trust other things, which may look a whole lot more sensible and make us a whole lot more friends and yet jesus would say those things they're that they're like sand to trust in what society thinks about something at this point that's like building on sand two years time it will have changed and we might sound a bit less weird and make a few more friends but actually finally those things will not stand I'm not sure what that means in terms of the specifics for you, for the battles you have in your life for trusting God and his word. It can be different things for each of us. Different things for us as a church, perhaps, in our current culture. It is a rapidly changing world at the moment. It's a messy and chaotic. And Yet the timeless command is that we trust God at his word. We acknowledge the other voices, we engage with the other voices, but we continue to trust him. We build on him. The third bit of hope, which flows from the second, is this idea of God always being sovereign and powerful, verse 22 and 23. And as Hannah was leading us in prayer a little moment ago, it's this idea that God is even in charge of Cyrus, even the most powerful man in the world is in the hands of the Lord. And Cyrus looks impressive, and our government look impressive. But you know, God's sovereignty even extends to politics, even to political leaders, and that may raise questions for us. But we can trust him. Cyrus' is Proverbs 21, verse 1 in action. In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. Which means even he is used by God to bring the people of God back to the land that God gave them. It means there's a possibility of a new exodus because God is sovereign. Do you remember the beginning of their journey? Centuries before, God had forced the hand of a reluctant Egyptian pharaoh to let them go to the land that God had promised. So now here at the other end... God can move the heart of a proud Persian king to let them go back to the land that God had promised them. Which means it's hope for us because as we're coming down the slightly messy, healthy, healthy helter-skelter of, of our society and life at the moment, where perhaps it's harder and harder and harder to live quiet, faithful lives as believers. So we can be confident That if God can move the heart of Cyrus, he can move the heart of fill-in-the-blank, whatever our context might be. And so it's right, as Hannah did, that we pray for our, our leaders in government. Because they might think they're in charge, but actually chapters like this show us that God is. And so I think the book ends with hope. There is this frustrating sort of dismantling of what's been built. But we end on those three hopes. God will always preserve a people for himself. You can always trust his word to be be trustworthy. And he is always sovereign and powerful. But then the story goes on. Do you remember from week one, 11 weeks ago, the final few verses here in 2 Chronicles 36 are actually repeated at the start of Ezra 1 which means the people are back in the land, which means the rebuilding, to an extent, does happen. But the final piece of hope for us, though, comes not from from ground level, if you like, but as we pull right back and we see what's going on from above, this little bit of the story, this little episode, is actually a part of a much bigger story. And so we see the cross, the cross of Jesus. Yet yeah, the people do head back to the land, but it's, it's never as good as it was. And the old men look at the temple that's been built and they cry. They weep because they remember how good it was. And, and this little hope they had is not the true hope. It turns out God had a bigger plan in mind. And it's a plan that doesn't just deal with Persians or Assyrians or Babylonians or even Romans. It's a plan that deals with bigger enemies than that, the, the cosmic enemies of sin. Of suffering, of death, the problem of separation from the God who made us. Which means that plan ends up on a hillside. And in his great love at a cross, there we see God perfectly, do you see, preserving a people for himself. And there we see God perfectly being trustworthy. What he said would happen, happened. His plan was perfect, and Christ rose again. And there we see perfectly that our God is sovereign and powerful, even though it looks unlikely. Even though it looked bleak and hopeless. As Jesus was raised again, so you see that there always is hope. And interestingly, at that point, you see the land in Chronicles. It turns out it wasn't really about just a land. Actually, that land was a signpost to an even greater hope a hope that we can never lose a new heavens and a new earth, a true inheritance. One that we long for, one that is more beautiful and complete and perfect than we could ever imagine. One that has been secured to us, for us, by our King, by King Jesus. Is there a hope for people like us? In a messy and broken world like this, in our messy and broken lives? Well, with Jesus there is hope. And one day he will return. Let me leave us in prayer now. And then we'll remember again the hope that we have as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Father, thank you that in the challenges and the changes of life at the moment we we have a true and certain hope and it's not just simply an escapism or, or whistling in the dark and pretending life is okay but thank you that we have a certain hope because it's rooted and founded upon you and who you are thank you that you you will always preserve a people for yourself thank you that your word is always trustworthy thank you that you are always sovereign and powerful Thank you for the cross and yet we pray that those truths wouldn't just be ideas but that you might help us apply them to the reality of our lives. In the challenges and in the changes of life, help us please to cling to the hope that we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.